Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am joined by a new guest, writer, director, producer, Ann Wells. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm I'm delighted to have you on the show. This this actually, for listeners out there, this happened rather quickly. To understand, I've, I've spoken at great length throughout the five years on this show about where I live. I live in Ocala, and it's sort of kind of a smaller town, population 55,000. It's got a couple movie theaters. But it also has what I'd like to describe as a really kind of robust indie film scene. So last year in 2018, I was aware of a film premiere for a movie that was actually filmed here in Ocala. And unfortunately, I didn't get an opportunity to to go to the premiere. But I was aware of you, Anne, and I honestly a little disappointed I didn't get a chance to see the movie because I've, I've said this before that this town has just really got this great film scene. We've had film festivals here. We've had movies filmed here going all the way back to Creature from the Black Lagoon and things like that. So before we get into this very long deep dive conversation, why don't you tell the, the listeners a little bit about the film I'm talking about? and a little bit about yourself. So the film you're talking about is An Accidental Zombie Named Ted. It's a film that took me five years to make. It's uh, about a guy named Ted who's kind of an ordinary guy, but living in this kind of off-kilter world. He goes on vacation to the Caribbean. He comes back not feeling so well. And then throughout the process of the movie, realizes that he's been turned into a zombie. And he has to kind of come to terms with it. He goes to therapy, as you do. If you're not feeling so good and you're not sure why nobody understands you anymore and everybody thinks you're weird. So, but everything in the movie is a little off kilter. You know, his family is definitely kooky. His therapist is kooky. In the process, he falls in love and it turns out that she is a vampire in denial. So we've got a, a zombie in denial who falls in love with a vampire in denial and it ends up being sort of a cute love story. And 100% filmed here in my hometown of Ocala, Florida. Yes, 100%. Now, where can people check this movie out? Because I, I, I would like to think that some people that are listening will just hit pause and say, I'm going to watch this movie before I get into this conversation. So where is this film readily available? That would be wonderful. Please do that. And this film is available really anywhere. I mean, I, I, I uh, if you go to the website, which is www.com, an accidental zombie named Ted.com. Uh, you can see all of the, the platforms listed, but it's, you know, we have domestic distribution and, and distribution in Canada as well. And so really, um, if you just search it, if you search it on your cable or on Amazon Prime or anywhere, you know, anywhere that you search it, you're going to find a bunch of options for where to watch it. It's on Hulu. It's, you know, it's everywhere. Yeah. And every single, every single watch helps us. So, and helps us get our next movie made and, you know. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to come back to the film that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, again, longtime listeners know that I am just forever curious about the entire process. And so, you, you made this movie. I watched this morning. I had a great time watching it. It was so much fun. And uh, again, I recognize a lot of the shooting locations. I'm, I, I go past these buildings every day. So, it, to me, it was like it was really fun just to not only enjoy the film, but to also enjoy the, the fact that it was made where I live. And I love that. But I'm always curious about how do we get to this? How do we get to this film? So, why don't we go way back and let's just start in the beginning. Well, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, to parents who had been Peace Corps volunteers in Turkey, and they uh, they were actually in the second group of Peace Corps volunteers ever. They had fallen in love with the country, and my dad, uh, when I was born, was getting his PhD um, in Turkish studies, in Middle Eastern studies, specifically focused on Turkey. So when I was three, you know, they moved, we all moved 
back there to Turkey. My dad worked for the Ford Foundation and my mom taught English as a second language. And we were in Turkey for six years. So that's really where I learned. I, I went to a British public school, so I spoke English with a British accent and uh, learned Turkish at the same time, really, that I learned English. And then I eventually, in Istanbul, I, I went to a Turkish public school, so English wasn't even spoken there. And then uh, we moved back to the U.S. Um, for a year. We lived in Boulder, Colorado. And then my dad was offered the position of director of the Peace Corps in Yemen, in Sana'a, Yemen. And so we moved there, and we lived there for three years. I never learned to speak Arabic uh, fluently, but I was able to kind of get around a little bit. Um, I really credit my upbringing overseas for, you know, who I am today. Um, and I'm really grateful to my parents for having been so brave. And it was nothing short of brave, especially to take two children, me and my younger brother, to Yemen, where there were no hospitals, uh, you know, no, and, and, and all the 13-year-old boys were carrying AK-47s in the street and, you know, and there were rabid dogs and there was no running water and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but what it gave me was this whole childhood, and including in Turkey, we really didn't have television, really didn't have movies, we really didn't have any of that stuff. We kind of had toys and books, and not even a lot of toys. And uh, because we were Peace Corps, we weren't even part of the sort of American expat community so much. So we weren't like going to the commissary or, you know, things like that. We were really just kind of living among, you know, the people. So it just created in me this real creativity. I mean, I just I just spent a lot of time making up stories and living in my own little world and writing poetry and writing stories. And yeah, I don't know. It was just, it really stoked my creativity. For the international listeners, and maybe those who don't know, what exactly is the Peace Corps? Like, what exactly is, what does someone who's in the Peace Corps do? Well, they tend to be, they're very highly trained. It's, they're, they're, uh, it's not like anybody can join the Peace Corps. You have to go through a whole lot of training and a whole lot of testing and stuff. You have to be fluent in the language where you're going to live. You have to have a skill that is actually very useful for that country. And it tends to be things like um, helping countries get clean water or... Um, uh, infrastructure of some kind. I know like one of the things they did in Yemen was uh, teaching them how to terrace the land so that they could grow more crops. And yeah, so it tends to be that kind of thing. Very, very sort of basic, useful skills that you're teaching people in uh you know, in other countries, you tend to not be in necessarily the biggest cities sure. or whatever. You tend to be out in the in the smaller cities a lot and, you know, helping them just figure out better ways to survive. What happens after Yemen? When do you sort of transition back to the United States? That was not an easy transition. I can tell you that. Because uh, let me ask you this. Yeah. This is so just you. The first part of your childhood is, is in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Then basically, you're, you said you moved back to Colorado. For and a then year. For a year. And then back, then you're going to Yemen. Mm -hmm. And how long were you in Yemen for? Three years. Three years. So what happens after Yemen? So after Yemen, we came back to the U.S. Um, and moved to the D.C. area. Okay. And it was a huge culture shock for me in every way. Uh, 
was terrifying. All my quote unquote relatives overseas were so scared, you know, that I was going to, you know, like, you're going to move to America. America is a very scary place. There are drugs there. You know, there are all these things that happen in America, you know, um, you have to be very careful. I was terrified of moving back to America. I didn't really know what it would be like. I did not want to come here. I was afraid of drugs. I was afraid of gun, of, of, um, gang violence. I was afraid of just a, a lot of things, which is kind of, it's kind of funny, you know, in retrospect, looking back on it. But, uh, and it was a difficult transition. I didn't feel like I fit in. My clothes weren't, you know, I wasn't wearing things that people here thought were cool. I didn't know any cultural, um, you know, things. I didn't, hadn't watched TV. I didn't know their references, their jokes, you know. I, so at a time when, you know, it was the sort of the end of middle school for me, uh, was a very difficult time because I just felt like, you know, you already, when you're a kid that age, feel like you don't fit in and yeah. maybe you're not cool and maybe you're weird. And, and I came here and I really was weird and I still am weird. I am weird and I'm fine with that, but, you know, I'm weird to begin with. And <laughs> You know, coming to America and not knowing what people wore or what, you know, I'd never really thought about like what people wore before. And it's interesting because you're American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's to me, that's, a, that's the sort of the, the entire like, wow. It's sort of like you were terrified to come back to, a, to come to America and you were, yet you yes. were American. But let me ask you this. I mean, what was your accent like? I mean, you had spent so much time over there. I mean, did you, I mean, were you, uh, immediately people, as soon as they heard you talk when you were back in the DC area, did they know right away that you were not from around there? You know, probably. Yeah. I mean, b- before I even started speaking, I'm sure just the way I was dressed. And one funny story I tell all the time is that, you know, because I was, I was so afraid that people were going to, uh, you know, I'd been told that they might, um, you know, come running up to me with needles and like put a needle in my arm that would have drugs in it. Right. So I, I mean, I was just terrified that this, like this place was a place where you came and like really bad things happen to you. And my first day on the school bus in America, I sat next to a girl who said, uh, who introduced herself. And then she said, do you party? And I said, yeah, you know, like, cause I'm thinking birthday party. Yeah, <laughs> I do that. <laughs> who wouldn't, you know? And then we're getting off the bus and she goes, well, come on, you know, back behind the school with me. And I was like, for what? <laughs> and she said, to party. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but I am not doing that. And this is terrifying. <laughs> and so anyway, it was, uh, it was just a very rough transition, very rough transition. And it is weird that as an American, I was scared to come live in America. And over time, I mean, I think because overseas you have this view of Americans, they're not very bright, they're, you know, it's kind of a scary place. Over time, I became, after living here, very um, protective of America and Americans and very sort of defensive about it, you know, like, hey, you know, we've got our issues, but we're not that bad, you know? And in fact... um, the day before 9-11 happened, I was having a conversation with my daycare lady and she was saying something negative about, you know, in America, we do this, we should never do that. And, you know, we're so dumb. And I just said, you know, 
hey, you know, after having lived overseas so much and as much as I love the countries where I live, I'm really grateful to be an American. And one of the reasons is because we don't have to worry about terrorism so yeah. much. And I said that the day before 9-11. I said that on 9-10. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah, no, that was, that was a day. So it was a day now that, so you've transitioned back to DC Mm -hmm. and you've gotten over your fears now. And then you've gotten to the point now where you're proud to be American. You're, you're defending. And I get it. I completely get it as somebody who, who immigrated to this country. Mm-hmm. You know, I always like to tell people, you know, I, I went from Halifax, Nova Scotia to a very rural part of Tennessee. And that was my first day of high school. So, I mean, I get it. It's very similar I, to I, what I, I absolutely yes. get it. And, uh, and, and I look back fondly at that time now. And some of my closest friends to this day are, are from mm. that small town. And some of the friendliest people I've ever met in my life are from that town. Like I just have very fond mm-hmm. memories and really, really proud of, of living here. And I mm-hmm. love living here. So mm-hmm. I, I get that. So you've always had this sort of creative mm-hmm. outlet. Or this creativeness about you. What, what's the first project you, you find yourself getting into? What do you go to school for? Well, I mean, what do you, I mean, you're, you're get through high school. What does Anne want to do with her life? Well, I'd always been an artist. I'd always been drawing and painting and writing. And I went to undergrad for um, studio art and art history. So that's what I studied in undergrad. And I just always thought I'd grow up to be an artist. I just was going to grow up to paint, and which I'd always done anyway. And I just loved doing it. And so I thought that's what I was going to do. I wasn't really so aware in myself at the time of the fact that I was also really interested in human behavior. Uh, just why? Why are we what we are? Why do we do what we do? How do, why do we interact the way we do? You know, and I had, but I had always been an observer of human nature and of people. And in college, one of the classes I took was a psychology course with a very strange professor. But something about, and maybe it was partly watching him be so weird, (laughs) you know, and then at the same time studying like human nature and psychology and why people are the way they are, I got really interested in that. And so I started thinking like, how can I combine my love of art with this interest in human nature and why people are the way they are? And so I went and got a master's in art therapy. Okay. And I worked with teenagers initially uh, in psych wards. And then eventually I worked um, with people with dual diagnoses, adults on the streets in Seattle who were being, through a program that was going on at the time, being pushed out into the streets essentially and and given caseworkers like myself who had huge loads of, but the the group homes were all being shut down because there'd been some abuses in group homes and they just thought, well, group homes are not the answer. So we're just going to shut them all down, down, which was a really bad idea. And so they put all these people who had, you know, had some sense of sort of family and home in these group homes, even though they needed, obviously, they needed some work these homes they shutting them down and just deciding to put them all out into society and uh just teach them how to live in an apartment was was a bad idea and i was part of that whole when that was happening and um so i was doing all of that through the process of that i was i also became a mother 
the first time. And uh, when I became a mom, I found it was really hard to be a therapist during the day and a mom in the evening because I wanted to be a therapist to my kids. I wanted to be able to be there for them and not be an empty shell by the time I got home. And so, so I was a stay-at-home mom for a while. I watched uh, Jerry Maguire one day when my youngest was just like a year old. So the kids were little and I was watching Jerry Maguire and I was living in uh, San Diego and with my then husband who had been transferred there. And I was just watching it by myself and I had this weird feeling like I kept watching Renee Zellweger play this part of this mother and it wasn't quite fitting for me. And especially when she lost her child in the airport and was more frustrated than panicked. And my, I had these three little boys at home and I was like, oh no, oh no, you, you lost your child in the airport. You better be freaking out right now, you know? And of course, now I understand this is not her choice, you know, and that that's a director thing. And, you know, and, and they still did a great job with it. I'm not criticizing the movie. It was just at that moment, I just had this little, little awakening where I went, I wonder if they don't have enough moms in Hollywood. Like, why did they have to, why did they put somebody in who clearly is not a mom? Which isn't even necessarily the case. As I said, I understand now that it's a directing, it's, you know, it's a director's thing and it's, you know, it's, but that's what happened in my brain. And then I thought, I wonder if I could do that. So Jerry Maguire came out 95, 96. I'm just trying yeah. to get a, an idea of the time mm-hmm. frame we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, okay. so it was right around 96, you know, that I saw it, uh, that I was watching it. So I just wondered if I could do it. And then I, and the last time I had tried acting had been in middle school when I had first moved to America and I had been told that maybe I should do something else. <laughs> and so I literally never thought about it again. It was a musical and I had gone to try out for the musical. I had a friend who was trying out for the musical and I thought, well, that seems like fun. And, you know, that teacher did the classic horrible thing that people, that, that theater teachers do to children periodically. I and know firsthand. Trust yes. me. Yep. Yep. And, you know, so, and I just believed her, you know, she just said, you know, honey, this probably isn't for you. And I was like, oh, oh, the, oh, okay. This isn't for me. All right. Uh, uh, so I had never thought of it again until that day. I'm watching Jerry Maguire. And I just thought, this is weird thought. I just thought, I wonder if I could do that. And then my next thought was, well, I can't memorize a whole movie. And then I thought, well, I wonder if I can move, memorize a whole movie. And I just assumed that cameras just follow you from one <laughs> place to the next. And you have to like act out the movie from beginning to end. I had no idea. So I... um So I sat there with my VHS tape and rewound and played and rewound and played and wrote down every line on a yellow pad of uh, Renee Zellweger's lines in Jerry Maguire. And then I went to a friend of mine. I was like, hey, I just memorized all the lines in Jerry Maguire um, for Renee Zellweger. And she was like, you can't memorize anything. And I was like, I know, but I weirdly, I did do this. And she was like, well, you're crazy. You know, you're 30 years old or whatever, you know, like, this is not how this works. You start this when you're a child, you know, like, this is not not how this all works. And I was like, I know. And the time, my husband, same thing. That's not how this works. You don't just decide at 30 years old, you're going to be an actress. Like that doesn't work. I was like, I know, I know. And then I went home and made a phone call to the one acting class 
in, uh, in San Diego at the time. And I went to the class, terrified, too scared to even talk. I sat in the back corner and watched everything. And by the end of that class, I knew it was what I wanted to do. And the next class, I got up in front of everybody and I was the first person in there. I was 10 years older than everybody in there. And I was the first person to get an agent, first person to book a job, first, you know. And I think partly it was because then I was also going through divorce and everything. And I think it was because I was more driven. Like, I was like, I found this later than you. You guys have taken it for granted because you found it when you were young. I just found this. And also, I have three little kids that need me at home. So, I better make really good use of every moment I'm away from them. And uh, I'm shortly after that moved to LA and became an actress. Loved it. I did all kinds of really fun things. But I didn't love the business of acting. So let me just ask you this, because I, I, I want to touch on what you said about not liking the business. But you said you immediately got an agent and you booked a part. What was that? What was the what was your the, very first professional acting gig? The very first one was actually it was um, really more of a modeling gig. It was a nationwide Motrin campaign where I was on billboards all over. I was in I was in the airports. I was everywhere. As um, and the the campaign was uh, Mo- Motrin spoken here, and um, so it was so it was me in an airport trying to get heavy luggage off the you know. Or falling asleep in an airport, you know, clearly between flights, that kind of thing. And that was my very first one. You moved to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You get into the business. Mm-hmm. You said you had a lot of fun. You didn't like the business side of it. Or or what What was it about? What What started to trouble you a little bit when you were there? Well, I think what it is, is that I am um, a leader. I'm a, kind of a control freak. I'm type A. I'm all of those things. And you don't really, when you're an actor, you're waiting for somebody else to make all the decisions. So it's like somebody else is telling you, yes, you're right for this part. No, you're not right for this part. Yes, you should do this. No, you shouldn't do this. You've got your agent running your life. You've got, you know, it's like... um It just felt like I didn't like not being able to make my own choices about what I wanted to do. So then I thought, well, I'm a writer. I was still writing. I had my whole life been a writer. And so I thought, well, you know, I wonder if I could just write something that would be the kind of thing I would want to act in. So I wrote this short film called Curtis and Candy that was just a total goofy play on the American dream and, you know, and stuff. And I wrote that. Again, everybody was like, Anne, you can't just go from being an actress to suddenly being a director and a producer. And it's so complicated. There's so much you don't know and you can't do that. And I was like, not only am I going to do it, I'm going to make a SAG film and I'm going to figure out step one, you know, one by one, every single day I'm going to work on how to do this and how to make this happen. Give me a time frame for this because I, I, I always want to point out that it's 2019 when we're recording this. The technology is is that a lot of times we uh, could do it ourselves. We could get a lot of stuff done. But give me a time frame and, and talk a little bit about what was that first step. You, you wrote a script for a, a, a short film. You want to do it by the book. What's the first step? Well, first of all, it was 2004. Okay. 
Okay. And second of all, those steps are not that different. I mean, now everybody thinks they can make a movie, yeah. but just getting in your backyard and shooting it. And I'm telling you, I go to film festivals all the time in 2019 and people are still shooting without lights. They're still shooting without sound. They're still, you know, without good sound, good mm-hmm. lights, you know, all that without knowing just the basics of filmmaking. You know, the first thing is you want to hire people on that know what they're doing for the different parts. So I knew from day one, and maybe just because I was older than some of the other people, you know, that I needed a cinematographer who knew what he was doing. I needed a, a, a first AD to help me through, you know, everything. I needed a, I needed actors that were SAG. I needed to get, you know, the SAG paperwork, figure out the SAG paperwork. The same thing is true now that was true then, which is this, the first step is, is doing a breakdown. You break down your script and you figure out, and then you figure out what your schedule, you cannot know what your budget is without knowing what your schedule is. So how many days is going to take to shoot it? And how many locations you need. All those things affect your budget. So you can't really. And so I literally just did that. I just sat down and went, okay, how many days is this going to take me? What do I need? You know, I learned so much on that first one. I learned why you don't shoot out in the desert, in a windy desert (laughs) with a tin roof and a generator. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, why that's going to cause sound issues for you. Like I learned that, uh, the hard way and then had to have all that fixed in post, you know, uh, that movie, a fun little fact, uh, the star of that movie was Corey Barlog, who was the, uh, director of God of War two. Interesting. Who was a good friend of mine at the time. And so we, so, and an actor and he starred in it. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So what happens when you complete that film? So, well, well, what was, what, what did you envision? You've written something that you wanted to create. Mm-hmm. This is this is your passion project. Mm-hmm. This is yours. You're doing it by the book. Everything's sag, everything's, you know, little little trial and error as far as how but what was your intentions with this short film? What did you want this short film to do? What did you want it to be for you? I mean So that's something I do differently now than I did then. Okay. I didn't really have an end game. Okay. I really didn't. I just besides making this movie, I just was like this would be fun. Let's do it and let's just do it right, you know? And I can put people in it that also have the same passions and we can, you know, it's sort of a little passion project. It was really an an artistic creation. And short films have the freedom to be that more than features do. A feature is really a business. A short film, you can kind of uh, just have fun with it, do whatever you want and not worry about where it goes, where it takes you. And so that's definitely what that was for me was just, um, you know, it was, and over time, I mean, at the end of that one, I still loved acting and I still, and I was starting to love directing too. And so I wanted to just do it again. Over time, over the years, I learned that I needed to pick between acting and directing. And the minute I decided to let go of acting, it was easy. Well, why did you have to? Was it just for just for your own sanity? Why you had to pick between acting and directing? No, because- it's because it's because I didn't do um, either one as well when I was doing both. Okay. So as an actor, ideally, you you want to be able to lose yourself in your character. 
not think about the big picture. You have a director who helps guide you and go, yeah, I see where you're going. You need to go a little further left. You need to go a little further right. You, But you have the luxury as an actor of just completely getting lost in it. And just listening to that one voice, the director's voice, just guiding you a little bit. You know what I mean? Like take it down a notch, take it up a notch, make it more important, make it less important, whatever. But you can really, you can really just sink down into it and go there and live in the moment. And I was pretty good at that. I got, I, I, I was an award-winning actress and I was, I was pretty good at that. But then when you're directing, it's, the job is so different. The job is the opposite, really. You know, the job as the director is to see the big picture and to help guide every single moment of it. And for me, I really believe that as, as a director, every, everything in the frame is important. And even though you have a good cinematographer and you have other, you know, you have a good script supervisor watching things and you have good, good art director and, and, and production designer and all those things in costumes. It's really important for the director to be the one sort of guiding light that keeps everything, that keeps all these amazing artists, you know, that are bringing their stuff to, to sort of just be able to be like, ah, we need that. Yes, that's perfect. We don't need that. Thank you. We need that. We don't need that. You know, here's what's going to make this big picture work. And to be able to do that, you can't really be lost in your character in the moment. And I think people with lots of money and fame do this, and some of them do it really, really well, do both, but they have to be able to have essentially somebody else. Like, I almost feel like it's a little unfair to say that you fully directed something that you starred in, because there were clearly other voices, other influences, because you couldn't have gotten lost in that character and also seen the big picture and also be behind the camera. You you can't. It's not possible for one person to be two people. I've always thought that. I've always wondered about that. That's really interesting you break it down that way. So it almost seems unfair because it seems like somebody else should be getting credit for the directing, If you, especially if you're starring in it. Now, if you're doing a small role in it or something, and then you've, you've sort of pulled aside everybody and gone, okay, here's where we're going with, with this and, you know, in the scenes where I'm going to be, you know, in there, here's what I want you to be looking for. And then you stop everything. You have the luxury because you have got all this money to, of time so you can stop everything and look over the, the, you know, the footage and kind of go, okay, we're going to do it again because this is really what I was thinking. And, you know, so you can, you can direct like that. But if you are starring in it, so you are in every single scene, you know, every single, I feel like somebody else should probably be getting credit for things, the things that they did that they're not getting credit for. You know who I immediately think of when you mentioned that? Just Clint Eastwood. Because he seems to star in uh, every movie he directs. He's, yeah. Well, most most movies he directs lately, he seems to also star in it. So, but I've always wondered about that. Who directs the director? Yeah. Or who directs the actor who's also the director? I mean, I'm always right. curious. Because exactly like what you said. I mean, you, you do multiple takes for a scene. And I've always been curious, like... If I'm the director, but I'm also starring in, am I just going, yep, that's exactly what I needed. If I'm like, if I'm do- like, I've always been curious about, thank you for breaking that down. You're yeah. Right. You're the other right. thing, the other thing I found was like, I wanted to direct the other people in the scene with me. Right. So I'm like, so I'm getting lost in my character and having this moment. And then I'm looking at the, uh, at another actor in the scene and having to go, hang on, hang on, hang on. Wait, wait, just a second. Here's, here's what I need you to do. You know what I mean? And then, okay, let's do it again. You know, and then I'm trying to lose myself back in the, the scene again 
but also focus on what the other actor is doing to see if that they're if they're taking my direction. And I was just like, at one point, I was just like, you know what? I'm not good. I'm not as good as an actor when I'm directing, and I'm not as good as a dire- as a director if I'm acting. So I need to pick, and. That's what I decided. And, and I mean, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying that for me, it was just. It's what worked. It's what worked for you. It's what worked for me. And I haven't regretted it. I love directing. So let's get into some of the things you directed post that first short film. Yeah. Like where, where, where do you go after that? You've, you had, you had, you got a lot of great experience with that first film. You've made the decision that directing is really what you want to be doing. It's what you're going to do best. Well, I didn't make that decision after that first film. I made that decision along the way after making many other short films. All right. So I did a bunch like that. Um, And then I think it was when I did Paradise Boys, which was my last sort of biggest short film that I did. And I, I really didn't like my performance in it. You know, and I was the editor, you know, so when I'm, I, I mean, when I'm editing, I'm also having to watch myself over and over again. And I really didn't like my per- performance in it. And I really felt frustrated at the end of the experience with like also things that I had missed as a director. You know what I mean? I was just like, ah, like I, this isn't as good as it could be. And in part because I'm in it. Interesting. You know? So that was when I really, and then when I started thinking, you know, my next one's going to be a feature, you know, like I I can't play around with, you know, also needing to see my face on screen. Like I don't need that. So what was your next one when you made that decision? My next one was an accidental zombie named Ted and it took me five years. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's, let's spend a little time talking about that. So whenever I do sort of deep dives into films, I always want to ask the first question, where does the idea come from? Where is the inspiration to do this film come from? And what is the very first thing you do to get the ball rolling? Okay. So I, I sat down with my buddy, uh, Jeff Matera, who he and I were having weekly or sometimes twice a week, we would get together to do, to just kind of do a writing session and to just kind of throw ideas at each other. And we sat down one day and that's when I, the day I decided or the, the, in that moment, maybe it was that week or whatever, but in the moment that I had decided that I'm going to make a feature, it's time. Like I'm done, I'm done doing the shorts. I'm going to do a feature and I've been doing shorts long enough and, and I'm ready to, to start doing this. And, um, so we had a writing session and we were bouncing around ideas and I just said, you know, I need something that's sort of commercial about this, right? I don't want to just make a passion project because that's not what a feature film is. A feature film is a business. So if I'm going to sit down and write something, I've got to write something with some element that is, you know, that, that has some, some uh, monetary sort of value. And I just remember going, well, it should probably have a zombie in it. And then I was like, and then my very next thought, uh, the producer in me went, zombies are expensive. So then I was like, well, what could I do with one zombie? What if I had one zombie? And literally, like, that was where the idea came from. By the end of that writing session, we'd sort of toss ideas back and forth about, you know, well, you know, how, how does a guy become a zombie? And I went home, I did a bunch of research on zombies, like, oh, what are all the ways that a person could become a zombie. And then it just flowed. I just sat down and wrote it. 
then it flowed, and then it changed dramatically over the five years of development. What goes on in that five years of development? Because so you get your your, your inspiration. You, you want to do something that's a little bit. It's got sort of that commercial appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the fact that you know you, you mentioned zombies, which let's, I mean we're talking that was right in the, mm-hmm. the heyday of The Walking Dead was the yes. biggest thing on TV. So yes. I mean you couldn't get in, for, you want to do something commercial that was it. I mean that yeah. was that was as big as it gets. Yeah, you look at the video games that were coming yep. out, everything. Yep. So you do the research on how does someone become a zombie, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm going to stay as spoiler free about the movie as as possible okay. because I want people to see the film. Yeah. So, but why five years? You've, uh, how long did it take you to write the initial draft? Oh, gosh. I don't know. You know, four months, maybe. Four months. Okay. Six months. Do you maybe. remember how many pages that was? Uh, well, it, it would have still been around, I think the first version was a little longer. So it would, it, maybe it was around 100 to 110 pages. And, and isn't the rule of thumb that it's usually one page equals one minute of film? And that it? is, that is, the rule that okay that is okay okay that is not kind of the rule that, that is, is the, the rule. rule okay see if then, a script yeah. is written right okay so and it's really important formatting of the script is extremely important because it is really important that your script that one minute of your script you know equals one minute in the film i mean one page of your script equals one minute in the film because otherwise Budgeting, scheduling, everything else goes out the door. You you wouldn't know otherwise how long it was going to take you and everything. So when you're writing, you have to be thinking about that all the time. Like you can't just sort of say, you know, uh, you know, and then a bunch of stuff is happening in the background. If that, you know, whatever's happening in the background or is if that's important to the story, you know, it has to be written in such a way that it takes the amount of time that it would take in the movie for you to watch that happening. How many people that write screenplays get that wrong? I mean, I don't mean professional hired screenwriters, but people that are just, I want to write a screenplay. I'm going to write a script. How many people just get that wrong? Lots, lots and lots and lots. lots. Yeah. Because, and one of the things that I think is a benefit to me as a director, actually, it's probably the most important thing is that I've been producing myself for so long. If I were not a producer and an editor, I would be a much worse writer-director. Even though I don't love producing and someday I would love to just hand that whole piece off to somebody else and not have to worry about it. And even editing, I mean, I would always want to sit in the room and I have my hands in it in some way. But like, I think knowing what I need to get, like what shots are actually necessary and what are not as an editor, like I know I can work around that. So let's skip that so that I and knowing that I have to stay to the schedule. I mean, it it's so so important. If you're a director who thinks, well, the producer worries about that. I'm not going to worry about that. I need five takes of this and I'm going to need seven takes of the next thing, you know, or whatever. Um, you, you're making things way more expensive and way more difficult than they need to be, you know? So as a director, I can walk onto set every day in the back of my head going, if we run a little over on this one, this one's more important. If we run a little over on this one, I know I'll do, I'm just going to do two takes on that next one because that next one is kind of not even sure I'm going to use it in the edit. You know what I mean? But I'm going to, I'm going to, it's still, it's kind of important, but it's not important to the bigger story. Right. So it's, I can let it go if I need to let it go. And I, and I walk in knowing all that because I'm a producer and because I'm an editor. And so when I write, I write like a producer editor, you know, so I know what I can do. On that one, I had people reject me in LA because they would read the script and go, there's no way this can be shot for the amount of money that you're asking for. It just can't be done. And I was like, "Ah, I'm a producer. 
and I'm an editor. I know I can do this. I wrote everything I know how to do. Mm, that's interesting. So yeah. I can do this. And they would go, yeah, yeah, no way. It's going to be, it's going to be a million dollars. It's going to be two million. It's going to be, there's no way. And uh, so anyway, I, I think that that's key. You have to know. And I always feel like if you're a director and you haven't produced and you haven't edited, you know, then you need people to babysit you. Yeah. Okay. So you kind of answered my my next question, which was, you know, you, you start shopping the script around to get funding, to, yeah, to get the project financed. The hardest part is financing. That is, and that's, that's rung true for, for years and years and still true to this day. Correct? And it's I mean, true because, it's true because it's a very risky investment. Yeah. Films are not, you know, it's not like you're opening a restaurant on the, you know, on the corner, you know, in New York City in Manhattan, you know, where you know exactly how the number of people that walk by it every day, the number of people who go to the restaurant next to it, the number of people who like this kind of food. You know, um, in films, in the, the bigger realm, like, like studios, th- that's all, it's all a numbers game. There isn't anything about it that's not a numbers game. And so every single thing, every person has a number on their forehead. Every actor has a number on their forehead, right? And so, you know, this is a question that comes up to me all the time about sort of like, you know, equal pay and that kind of thing. It's a tricky thing in this, in the film world, because the reality is that there are numbers tracking, you know, there there that have been tracked about, you know, literally how many people are clicking on this movie because they want to see this actor or actress. And that number equals a certain amount of money that is going to come in. And this is a business. So you could say apples and oranges should be equal. But if you're in a town where people are going to buy more oranges, you're not going to buy the same amount of apples. You know what I mean? So it's a really tricky, tricky, tricky thing. And so at that big level, they're all about that, you know, and it's, and it's, um, and they know how much money they're going to make unless something happens. It's still a little risky there because something can happen with one of their stars, like a big star can suddenly come out and say something stupid. And then all of a sudden everybody boycotts the movie or, you know, something like that. But they make enough of them, you know, and they have actuaries that are, you know, full-time paid actuaries and they're just sitting running the numbers all the time. So, you know, it's a little easier for them than it is in, in, in the indie world, but it is still about the numbers and it is really hard to get funding because you can't guarantee people that they're going to get their money back or that they're going to make money. Um, you can put as many pieces together that help it make money as possible. And that's what you have to do as a producer of an indie film is you're just going, okay, I'm going to put as many things in here that will help it make money as possible. But we don't have the full-time actuaries going, you know, so-and-so brings in this exact dollar amount, you know. Do you, well, you're in this sort of, I'll use the term sort of holding pattern, trying to get the financing. Are you approaching actors are you trying to get names attached to help you get the financing? You know, that's like a, the, you know, which came first, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the chicken or the egg. It's like, um, it's, a, it's a very tricky because you have to have some names attached before you, um, in some way, 
you know, and usually it's just with a letter of intent that basically doesn't promise that they're going to be in the movie because who knows what their schedule is going to be or whatever when you actually go to shoot. But they will sign a letter of intent that basically says, look, if everything works out and my schedule is, you know, works out and the money in the contract all works out, all of that stuff, I would like to be in your movie. And so that's where you have to, you kind of have to start with that a little bit. You know, that's the beginning, in the beginning of the fundraising phase, you have to do some of that because you have to be able to announce names. Otherwise, people aren't going to put their money in because they don't really know what they're putting their money into. So you have to have, you know, and then you also have to have people, you have to have people believing in you to not only put their money in, but then to also attach their name, you know, so you have to sort of prove yourself and, you know, call in all your favors and everything to get to get people to do that. Uh, with an accidental zombie named Ted, yeah, I was calling everybody. I was contacting people through Facebook. I was, uh, I did some crowdfunding so that I could do a table read in LA and pay some of the actors that I wanted to have in the film, pay them to come and do the table read and fall in love with the script, um, which they did. And so then it's easier, you know, because then you're giving them something, but it's expensive, you know, because you're paying all of them and you're paying for a location and you're paying for food and, you know, all that stuff. So even for a day or whatever, you know, it's still expensive. You still have to have money to be able to do that. But yeah, you know, all along, I'm always trying to get creative and sort of figure what is the key to fundraising for this project? What's the creative thing that's going to make people go, oh, yeah, I want to be part of that. Was there, is there any advice or anything you learned using the crowdfunding platform? Yeah, I used several of them. And I would say that unless you have a, a pretty big, big name attached or you are somebody that's famous, it's hard to raise enough money to actually make a movie. Also, because so much of what you raise in crowdfunding has to go back to the people that gave you the money in terms of gifts, um, you know, perks of some kind or another. It's a full-time job doing the crowdfunding. So you can't be crowdfunding and producing at the same time. So it's really full-time. It's all day and all night if you want to try to actually get the word out and get money raised. And usually you end up, you know, raising enough to do something like go have a table read, but not enough to make a movie. So I think, you know, one of the bits of advice I would say is just remember that, that make your goal reasonable, you know, and if you're going to use something like Kickstarter, you know, make sure you're not going to raise a huge amount of money that you have, you're not going to end up being able to access or use because you didn't hit your goal. Yeah, Kickstarter is a little bit different in that you you set a goal and if you don't hit the goal, you don't get you, any. You of don't it. get it, right? And I learned that the hard way. I did that, and I had a huge number pledged. And and once you once you get those people pledged. Like once somebody has pledged it, as far as they're concerned, the money's gone, right? They've, even though the money isn't gone, they put their credit card information in. Yeah. They're done with the whole thing. I supported that project, oh. right? Yeah. That's done and in the background. And then, so then I had to do this thing where I would have to reach out to every single person that pledged. And at that point, people are kind of like, yeah, yeah, I will. I will. You know, but they've kind of lost the, the whole, the whole thing loses its momentum, you know, and you, and momentum is important. You have to figure out, you know, 
all along the process. You know, where is the momentum right now? And if I, if I don't ride this momentum right now, is the whole thing just going to go crashing? So yeah, so crowdfunding, I say do a lot of research, really think carefully before you launch a crowdfunder, you know, about what you're doing and where that money exactly is going to go. And if you're only going to get enough to do a little bit of a movie, you, you know, you certainly can't start a movie without having enough to finish it. Yeah. You mentioned it was five-year development to get this movie made. And we've been talking a little bit about the, you know, the, the, I don't want to use the word struggles, but the challenges of, of getting this film financed. How far along into this project do you get the funding that you need? And what sort of was the impetus of that funding? Well, I have to talk about Ocala a little bit. Oh, please do. And again, let's just want to remind, we are actually recording in downtown Ocala right now. This is where I live. And so this is, this is exciting to hear all about this. So please. So I, in the process of trying to figure out where am I going to shoot this and talking to a million different companies and pitching the movie in LA and, you know, all these different things in the process of that, um, a friend of mine, Greg Thompson was mentioning to me this film festival that he was the director of. in, uh, called the Silver Springs International Film Festival in a town called Ocala, Florida. And I was half interested, but, you know, interested because he's a friend of mine. Assuming it was just a little nothing festival, just only not because of him, but just because most of them are. And so, but he said, do you have any films, you know, that you want to put in? So I put my first ever film in, Curtis and Candy, um, that had been years later at that point. But I just thought, you know, I, I, you know, I was busy trying to get my, my feature done and stuff. And, but so I just sent it in and he had nothing to do with picking the movies, you know, or whatever. Um, but it happened to get picked to be in the festival. And I knew he was coming down for it. And he had put some stuff on Facebook about, you know, hey, anybody in the DC area want to come, you know, support my film festival, you know, in Ocala, Florida. And I was like, you know what, my film's in it. I'll go wherever that is. And so I came down to Ocala, Florida. And still to this day, that is the best film festival I've ever been to. And I've been to Cannes, I've been to Sundance, I've been to a lot of film festivals. It was an amazing festival. I mean, they just put on event after event after event and made the filmmakers feel special and made us really feel like they'd, they'd really watched our films. They really appreciated our films. They appreciated us as artists. They understood us. They did special things for us. They would have, you know, just, uh, cocktail parties and, you know, Q and A's and just all these really neat things. And, I just had a blast. And at that time, people kept saying, oh, you should, you're making a feature. You should come make it here. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to explain, but really hard to do in a small town because you need all these resources. And, you know, it's probably not going to happen in Ocala, but thank you. The next year, uh, I had two of my shorts in the festival down here. And I was like, of course, I'm going to go to that festival. That was a blast, you know, and I've learned about this little town in Florida and all the people are so nice. And I came back again. And again, people were like, you got to do your feature here. You really should think about doing your feature here. And I came back from that festival kind of going, 
wonder if I could do my feature down there. And I started sort of researching, well, you know, it's not far from some film schools. It's not far from Orlando where they have some resources because we tend to need bigger resources than most small towns have, you know, in terms of just being able to rent the lights and the cameras and the generators and the, you know, and getting film crew that know what they're doing. And, you know, if you have to fly in every single last person to some small town somewhere, that adds up. So, I came down here again with, I had reached out to a bunch of people in Ocala and said, hey, I'm going to come down and just explore the idea of doing my film in Ocala. They were very perfectly Southern in the sense that they just said, come stay with me. You can stay with us. You know, you're like family. You're part of the film festival. You know, we'll, we'll introduce you to the mayor. We'll, and you know, you can speak at city hall. You can, uh, you know, you can come talk to my rotary club. And so I came down here thinking I drove down and I didn't know how long I was going to stay. I think that first time I stayed three months no. bouncing from house to house and meeting the mayor and meeting the former mayor and meeting the, and you know, speaking at city council several times and speaking at everybody's Rotary Club and everybody's, every every dinner party, every, the film festival, the film foundation meetings, you know, everything. And I just started speaking about the movie and doing the research. And then people started coming forward and going, I'd like to invest. And one of the things I realized is like, because it's such a risky investment, you've got to really be offering more than just a movie. And I already had some names attached, but like, it was more about like, here's this person who came to stay in Ocala for three months. She's willing to consider our town, you know, as the backdrop of her movie. And we want to support that. You know what I mean? So more than just, I want to invest in a movie, you know, I want to invest in this person, me, and also in this project that would bring, you know, value to the town. And I did a spreadsheet recently, and it turns out we spent $107,000 in Ocala last time. And, you know, for the next one, we're projecting 230000 You know, so it does bring value to the town. It does bring, you know, actual business to town. That's how you did it. That's incredible. That is I can't, I, I went back home. Like I, I was here for like three months. I went back home. I came back for another two months, I think, and then went back home and then came back for like the, the couple months before we shot once we had the money raised and I had to downgrade the budget. So I did have to, we had a certain dollar amount. We didn't quite get it, but it was like what I was talking about with momentum. We weren't quite there. And I had said, if we didn't hit that number, we weren't going to pull the trigger and we hit a certain number and plateaued. And I started to go, "Mm, if we plateau for too much longer, we could have people start dropping off. You know, the momentum should could start going down. So I literally went back to my script. I went back to my schedule. I went back to everything. I chopped things out. (laughs) You know, I made the, the story much shorter. You know, I cut out characters. I, but still, you know, just, just trying to maintain a cohesive story that could still be told in less pages, less days, less, you know, and then I went around 
around shaving everything else, you know, okay, if we spend a little less on post-production, if we spend a little less on this, if we spend a little less on that, you know, if we get more more restaurants coming forward to give us food, you know, we can cut that part of the budget. And so I basically just cut the budget down to the number that I had in the bank and then said, now we're pulling the trigger. All right. So the films now, you've, you've like you just said, you're, you're, you're funded, you're ready to go. Let's talk a little bit about the casting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to know a little bit about, you know, using locals and, and hiring actors and some of the names that were attached early on. Well, Naomi Grossman's a great example of somebody who'd been, who was on board from the very beginning almost. And I got her, uh, through a casting director, um, who recommended her and I hadn't really thought of her. Um, and the casting director recommended her and she was so friendly and her her uh, representatives were so friendly and she came on board from the very beginning. Um, casting changes a lot once you have your funding because when you have your funding is when you actually find out if people are available and you can't change around your schedule for people. So because you have so many people you're bringing together um, in one place, if you started shifting things like, oh, so-and-so is not available on those dates, uh, so we're going to have to... Um, you know, to, to shoot these dates. Well, then, so some other person isn't available those dates. And so then we, so you have to, um, so things just change. People drop out or you contact or they uh, are too expensive or, you know, you, you can't negotiate. You cannot get a number that works within your budget or whatever. Um, so, so casting changes a lot once you have the money. And once you have the money, you can also then reach out to people that you may, may not have reached out to before, but you actually have an offer to make them. You know, here's how much money we are actually going to pay you. So yeah, so things changed a lot uh, once I had the um, once I had the funding. Are you overseeing the casting or do you have a casting director? Um, I had a, I had um, a casting director, well, a team of casting directors, um, Billy DeMota and Dee Weiss, um, in L.A. in the very beginning when we were trying to just get a couple of names attached. Um, because I've been in the industry for so long and I have a, like lots of friends and lots of connections, I don't really need a casting director so much for the most of the roles. Um, for me, a casting director is very useful to get somebody like with the Naomi Grossman situation. If I need a name and I need somebody who has a connection to that name, that's when you want to, you want the offer to come through a casting director because it just gives it clout. Okay. So it, it's just more, more clout than just coming directly from me. So, but yeah, generally I just cast, uh, you know, most of the cast is people that I know or people I've reached out to personally. Um, can we talk about one of the, the bigger names? In, sure. In your, in you, your movie? We can talk about yeah. any of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, you know, when the movie first starts, you've got easily, you know, one of the most iconic horror movie actors of all time and, and Kane Hodder. So tell me how he gets involved with the project. We reached out to his manager, Judy Fox, lovely, lovely lady. And... Um, we just made an offer. You know, we wanted some names in that industry and he was an obvious one. And I also just really felt like he would do a good job with the role. You know, he, he loves acting. 
Not everybody does, you know, and he loves acting and he's really good. And, uh, so that part I just thought would be perfect for him. We reached out and, um, it was just a very friendly, very, very friendly exchange, um, with his, with his agent. And yeah, he just, he accepted, we, we negotiated a deal and he accepted and he was, he just could not be a more gracious, person, you know, we couldn't afford to do rehearsals, you know, because that's, you know, you're paying extra days, extra nights, extra food, all those things. So we really couldn't afford to do rehearsals. So I had to just set up Skype meetings with people. And, you know, with more famous people, you don't know if they're even going to agree to do that, you know. And he, by my first, the first conversation I had with him, he already had his lines memorized. He thought really thoroughly through the character. He had all kinds of great ideas. Um, I have the really dubious honor of being the person that, that actually caused him to like cigars. He had never (laughs) smoked a cigar in his life. And I had written that the, that he smokes a cigar. And, um, he said, how attached are you to that? Cause I've never smoked a cigar in my life and I'm not sure I really want to. And I said, well, you know, let's, let's see about some fake cigars. You know, I'm not going to force anybody to, you know, put tobacco in their system. And so, uh, I had gotten some fake cigars and we were going to use these fake cigars and I think I was even going to send him some through the mail so he could practice with them. And at some point, I either get a message from him or I talk to him. I can't remember exactly how it happened where he was like, you know what? I tried a cigar and I really like it. He goes, so I'm going to smoke cigars in the movie. He was a very convincing cigar smoker in the film. If you, yeah. if you had told me that he had never smoked cigars prior to that, I would I would have been, wow. Okay, that was... No, that, yeah. 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 Let's talk about... Let's talk about... Uh, our protagonist of the story. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Ted. He is that gentleman is unbelievably charming in this movie. He, and he, brilliant. He, he is terrific. Yes. Tell, tell me about casting him. Um, so Cameron McKendry, um, he was one of the the last people cast actually, because um, originally I had somebody else cast in that role, and I was really committed to diversity in casting. Um, and so I had originally thought that I wanted that character to be played by someone who was not Caucasian. Uh, through a series of events, um, I ended up having to just widen my my mind because of we were down to the wire and stuff. And so we reached out to a few people on uh, IMDb directly to their, we just looked at IMDb and we're like, you know, what about this guy? What about this guy? He was one of the people that we reached out to and he did an audition and he sent in a tape and I just kept coming back to it. There's something about Cameron. He just has this like uh, genuine... You know, he's not only super good looking, you know, he's got those eyes that, you know, and I wanted something about the character to be really kind of, because we were going to make him, his skin ugly, you know, I really wanted him to, to be able to, there, there to be something about him that was still undeniably adorable. Yeah. I, I mean, I am so glad we got him. He not only has a great attitude in life and just in general, and is just a wonderful human being, great 
to work with, but he's very talented. It was not easy for him to keep a straight face, to be the straight man. I mean, that's really what he is in this movie. He's the straight man throughout. And, you know, so he's living in this really weird world and he's having to just react to it a lot of the time. If you didn't watch to the very end... You should because it's their, their outtakes up until the very end. So there are all kinds of outtakes in the credits of the movie. And there you see him, you know, a few times losing it, especially with Mal, uh, you know, when he was acting with Mal. But, you know, also with Gary Anthony Williams and Naomi Grossman and Sandy McCree and all those guys were hilarious. And, you know, he basically just had to sit there with the straight face and just react. He's good. He did. He's he did, he, so he did good. Great. I mean, it, he was just from the moment he was on screen. I just I said she did it. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, he was he's perfect. He's so perfect in that role, and and it was it was it was a pleasure watching him on screen. So. Oh, well, I'm definitely going to tell him that. But yeah. he also the other thing about him is that like you know because it's, there's so many weird characters in it yeah. that I yeah. often, especially when I was doing test screenings and things, I would ask people who's your favorite character, you know, and I and often it was you know it was Mal or you know. Um, or the you know one of one of the family people or something, but most of the answers, most of the time, it was Ted. Yeah, and I was like, wow, that is so interesting. Yeah, he was great. He was great. He is lovable. I did see some familiar faces. Yeah, in the in the film. How does that come about? I mean, so is it just you know, did you do a local casting call or? Oh, you mean the, from for the locals from Ocala yeah, from yeah, the Ocala? Yeah. Area? Um. Oh gosh. Well, uh, let's see. There was um Brittany Taylor Visser who lives in L.A. now, but is the daughter of one of the people involved in the Film Foundation. So I had already met her through through that. You know, through she was here for the film festivals and things. So I had met her and knew she was an actress, and I'd seen some of her work. And she was great. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to shoot a movie in Ocala. I've Absolutely. got to put her in it. And then Anthony Gilardi, same thing. I had met him here. And so I knew I wanted to put him somewhere. He also lives in LA. I'm trying to think who are. Oh, and then uh, Corinne Bukowski, you know, was a finalist on The Voice. And she... um and I wrote that part for her because, uh, so she was the singing intern. And, um, when she was on The Voice, she was known at the time for being the person who'd forgotten the lyrics to one of the songs. And which, of course, was mortifying for her and everything, but, you know, ended up being something that gave her some distinction. And, you know, her fans just loved her anyway. And, of course, it's happened to everybody. But so I wrote her as an intern who, you know, kept singing the wrong words to songs. <laughs> but she, um, uh, but her family um, is well known here in town. They just happened to be in town when I was down here prepping for the, for the, um, movie and I had no idea and was introduced to them. Um, I'm trying to think who else was local. There's uh, also Scott Jacob, who is, uh, he's Doc in the, in the now torn down um, old water park. Um, and he um, is an, he is a retired um, park ranger from there, from Silver Springs. And he, we had just become very good friends. And uh, so, yeah, so I put him in, in there as that. Then uh, the board secretary was played by uh, Laura Bradford, who is uh, a staple at the, the local theater. So many people have seen her acting there. It was all the locals. Okay. How many days did you have this scheduled? 
And did you stay on schedule? I mean, did you, are there any, any interesting stories about, you know, going over schedule, you know, finishing on time early, that type of scenario. And then I'll follow that up with some of the shooting locations that yeah. you, you, you chose. So, um, it was an 11 day shoot. One of the things I'm most proud about in my career as a director and producer is that I've never gone over on a day. I have never, uh, the, the crew gets their 12 hour turnaround no matter what. And I never don't get all my shots. Um, so because it's not an option because it affects the budget, you have the money you have, you know, so I wouldn't even know what to do. I mean, if we had to go to another day, what we, what would we do? We don't have budgeted another day, you know, and we have people flying in and out of here. We had people, you know, so, I mean, the actors would have to leave the next morning. We can't afford to cancel their flight and they might have something else they're flying to go off to do. So in the indie world, you know, I tell people all the time, like one of the reasons you don't like uh, in the indie world to work with people that aren't professionals, like people go, well, why don't you just hire everybody local? And, you know, why don't you hire the guy that looks the part that's walking down the street, you know, because it's so important to the budget for us to do everything. I mean, a, a true actor, a professional actor, if they lose a limb on the way to the set, they're going to, they're going to bandage it up. <laughs> And get to set. And then that character is going to have missing a missing limb. I mean, like, there's no, you know, like, if you are on your deathbed, maybe, you know, but an, a true actor is never going to miss an opportunity to act. And it doesn't matter how sick you are. I don't care, you know, if you have the worst flu ever, you know, you tell your doctor, you figure it out, the doctor gives you something to make you get through the day. You know, you sleep in between when we're not shooting, you, you know, and a true professional actor will do that. And crew too. Like we don't, there is no not being there. That's, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, because we just can't afford it. It's too much money. It's too much. It's too complicated. It's too. And what if you have your? What if you? You know, you you are missing an actor or something. You know, you could end up having to reshoot other scenes because you had to shoot something without or or rewriting the script partway through. Like who? Nobody has time to do that. I'm I'm immediately thinking about your the way you just explained that to me puts what Spielberg went through with the making of Jaws into a completely different perspective with the fact that the shark never worked and what do you do? Yeah. What do you so I'm I, mean, I know that sounds completely off off it but, isn't. It, but 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 the way you explained it, I immediately thought about, well my God, they went like a hundred days over schedule and you know, because they oh wow. So now because it's it's so tightly woven. Every little Every aspect. Every single little thing is tightly woven. It also is why it's more complicated. One reason why it's more complicated to make a movie outside of LA, you know, outside of where everybody lives. Because if there is a problem, what do you do? You that's, know, that's so interesting. Um, but yeah, no, you can't. You've got so many people, everybody depending on, you know, on it all working. So let's talk about the shooting locations. And this one's going to be really for the Ocala listeners yes. out there. So let's talk about what were some of the places that you immediately, when you were down here, you immediately said, yep, I've got to put that in the movie or I've got to use this location. And how easy was it for you to secure the locations? Well, it was not that easy. There were a lot of places that I, that I sort of fell in love with by just walking around downtown. And I was like, Oh, I want to shoot in that building. You know, who owns that building? How do I get, you know, permission to just shoot in that building? It was more complicated than I thought it was going to be. 
I had to keep changing that. Somebody would go, oh, that guy, you know, he doesn't let anybody do anything or, or that's just been sold and somebody's about to do this with it or, um, or I would talk to people and they would be like, yeah, that's fine, but you have to pay for all the electric and water, which is a reasonable mm-hmm. request, but not what we had in the budget, especially after I had shaved it down to nothing. So I ended up, um, Actually, in the very beginning, I had fallen in love with that bank building on the corner. What do we call that building? The Murphy building. The uh, You know, the, I think so. Yeah. Uh, it's. It, but it used to be a – what was the bank? Because I know I've heard some people call it – I don't know if it was uh, Ocala National or something. I, I think I, I so. I don't know, but I'll tell you, that was the immediate first image that jumped out yeah. to me when I watched the movie today. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, this is – that's downtown Ocala. Like I, oh, yeah. Because I, I just want to remind listeners that I really went into this movie not knowing anything about it from the casting to where it was filmed and, and when when ann and i met today before recording i said so did you shoot some of this in ocala she's like no no i shot the whole thing in ocala i'm like this is so exciting so okay so yeah no that's a beautiful and and listeners i will post pictures on my twitter to sort of give you some reference points of what we're talking about yeah yeah it's this it's this this beautiful old building that's just sitting there and you know it's it you know, it has this really cool old clock on the outside of it that doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, yeah, I just loved that building. And I was lucky enough, um, I met somebody who knew the owner, who was working for the owner. And the owner was so generous. I mean, you know, to allow us to, without knowing me, without me having proven myself or anything, you know, he allowed us to use that building, didn't ask for a dime, did not, we did not have to pay for water, we did not have to pay for electricity, nothing. And we, you know, I mean, I, th- I think we left him very happy, you know, with what we did, we cleaned it very thoroughly before and after, we, uh, you know, we even shored up the the stairwell on the back. And, you know, we did some things like that. Loved shooting in that building. And we just went in and turned it into the inside of an old factory. You know, the production designer, who's so clever, um, Mark Dillon, did a, just a fantastic job of turning that into the inside of a factory. So let's talk about any other any other locations yes. jump out to you. Yes. So then, uh, well, then across the street from that, um, in the old hotel yes. yeah. building, is where we shot the therapy scenes. Okay. Yeah. Um, again, very very generous owner who allowed us to shoot in there. And then uh, Silver Springs, the Silver Springs Park. We had wanted to shoot more scenes in the bigger park area and would have gotten permission to do that, which was amazing. But we didn't have the budget for the lights that we would have needed to shoot there in the dark. So we, um, so then we, you know, asked about that old um, water park that was about to be torn down. It had just been closed down for good. Uh, we got permission to use it, which was amazing. And it's so cool now because it's it was a landmark that was very near and dear to people in this area. And now it's completely gone. It's just flat ground there now. It, I mean, and this is a place that I used to go to yeah. 18 years ago. It must have been... Did it have sort of that eerie, abandoned amusement park feel before you even went in there with your production designer? But you, like, what oh, did yeah. it look like in there? It was like, an overthrown? eerie, abandoned. No, yeah. I mean, I fell in love with that. 
location. I mean, I walked in there and was just like, you have to be kidding. This exists, you know? And it's just sitting here, you know, with the signs all, you know, like, do not enter, (laughs) you know? And we were just like, oh my God. You know, it was gorgeous, beautiful. We hardly had to do anything. During that 11-day shoot, what's the buzz like around the area? You know, what? what's happening? What's happening? You know, you know, you've got some people that have locally that have invested. People know you're shooting this movie. What, what kind of reactions are you getting just in the area? It was so positive. I mean, the mayor visited the set. All of the investors came and visited the set and watched scenes being shot. Um, the whole town was just a buzz and so friendly to, you know, all the actors would go out after the shooting for drinks and food downtown. They fell in love with the town. The townspeople fell in love with them. They're now all, there's really a family has been built because of the movie that includes people in Ocala and people in LA all feeling like family and people from LA, many of them feel like they could come back anytime and they have people's homes to stay in. And, you know, um, yeah, it was a really neat family that was built. What was the 11 day shooting experience like for you? Because this is your, this is your, this is your baby. This is your project. This is five years in the making. What is going through your mind during this 11 day shoot? I'm doing it. It's happening. Are all the pieces falling into place the way you want them to do? I mean, it was there. What's what's it like for you? Pretty much everything fell into place the way I wanted it to. It was I was on edge the whole time, um, but trying to stay grounded and remember the moments. You know, stay in the moment. This is a really important moment in your life. You know, remember this moment. And yet, the enormity of the responsibility on my shoulders was you know was was huge and weighed on me all the time. So I definitely felt this sort of edginess, you know, like this has got to go right and I've got to make this decision and okay, I've got to do that and I've got to do this and I've got to... And so there was definitely that sort of this anxiety, um, underlying anxiety. But at the same time, I was just so proud to be sort of at the helm of such an amazing group of people that had all come together. And it was really just sort of a dream come true. You know, it really was. I was staying walking distance from the locations. So I would get up every morning and just walk early in the morning, you know, through Ocala and to the location and just kind of remind myself, this is happening. What time of the year were you shooting? I mean, what, 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 yeah, I'm just curious. I, immediately I'd start thinking about the heat because right now it is hot out here. So when, when, when were you shooting? It was this time of year. Okay. It was May. It was it May. Was the end okay. of May. Um, yep. And, uh, it was extremely hot. Um, and there are complications that come with that. You know, when you've got your air, air conditioning running, it can cause sound issues and, you know, and things. But, um, but we ended up, I tend to write my, my movies so they don't have very many exteriors. Um, for a lot of reasons, it's always more expensive because it's, unpredictable. What if it's raining? What if it's, you know, like it's can be very scary to do exteriors. You have to have, and then you have to have more equipment and more lights, more, you know, generators and stuff. You have more control in an interior. So I tend to write my scripts with many more interiors and just a few exteriors. It was very hot on the days that we shot outside. Um, and I get dehydrated really easily. So, I mean, you know, I'm uh, hyper aware of that. And, you know, we had tons of, we had, um, one of our, uh, one of the wonderful people locally is the owner of Marvelous Water and they brought us water 
um, every day. We had, we had water bottles every day on set. We had fresh water in jugs, you know, we had all of that, but yeah, it's hard to shoot in the extreme heat. Um, but you know, I guess I've got one more question before we just segue into the post-production. What about craft services? What, what did you, did you get involved with any of the local restaurants for craft services? Yes. And that was very important. Without them, we couldn't have afforded to shoot the movie. And it was amazing. I mean, Mark's brought us food. La Cuisine brought us food. Um, Mesa de Note brought us food. Symmetry Coffee brought us coffee every morning. And was this all donated? Yes. That's incredible. Yes. That's incredible. It was amazing. It's very interesting. I mean, yeah. And without it, like I said, we wouldn't have been able to shoot because what you want to do with your budget at the indie level is have as much of it showing on screen as possible. So you really want to, you know, you really want to want the dollars that you spend to show up basically on screen. And uh, so if you're spending a big portion of your budget on hotels, food, transportation, things that nobody sees, you know, then it, it... you know, you really want the, 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 then you don't end up with a project that looks like more than you spent. And that's the goal. You want a movie that looks like you spent more money than you did. And the way to do that is to get free locations, free food, free transportation, free lodging, that kind of thing. So we got lots of that. I mean, we also spent a lot of money, obviously, on those things. You know, sure. we still had to buy food. We still sure. had to, but we also had local um, volunteers who would bring us, um, you know, craft services, you know, bring us snacks, the craft services table full. You know, we, we it was really, I mean, the town came together. You wrap up the 11 days. What's next? What crucial roles are you playing in this one? I'm asking about, you know, editing music. I mean, what, what roles are you overseeing? Are you, do you take on? Well, I I have to oversee everything, Sure, but the, um, yeah, so a lot. So, um, the music in the film, much of it is original. I don't know if you've heard of Dan Byrne, but he's a, um, he's a pretty well-known folk artist. He also did the soundtrack for Get Him to the Greek and he did the soundtrack for, um, uh, Walk Hard the Dewey Cox Story. He, uh, he did the soundtrack, does the soundtrack for, um, the Stinky and Dirty Show. If you have kids, it's a, it's a, um, cartoon. Um, it's actually my nephew's favorite show. He, his wife was a friend of a friend of mine and I reached out to him early on in the process, sent him the script and he was wonderful. He loved the script and sat down and wrote some songs and then, Uh, He introduced me to a couple of other musicians, and we sat down in a little uh, studio in Pennsylvania. It was me and him and Holly Montgomery and Cliff Hillis, and we wrote songs and recorded them for the soundtrack. Yeah, so those are all on the soundtrack. And then uh, Corinne Bukowski, one of her songs is in it. So Ignacio Perez Marin was the um, composer, and he's in Chile. Um, so we worked by Skype and stuff mostly. And then, uh, what we did for editing was that Aitor Uribari, my DP, my director of photography, um, flew over from Spain with his computer and we sat back to back computer, computer to computer, you know, um, in my living room for a couple of months editing together. And what the way we did it was I would edit a scene and then he 
would edit the same, you know, so I would, if I was editing scene one, then he would take scene one and play with it. And if he was editing scene two, then he would hand it to me and then I would edit it, you know, and we would go back and forth with, is this how we think it should be? Is this, you know, okay, well maybe, you know, try doing this, try doing that or whatever. So we basically just co-edited the entire thing. And then we did all of the rest of the post-production in Spain. In Spain? Mm-hmm. So I flew to Spain and um, Itor had a lot of connections there. That's where he's from. That's where he lives. So he had a lot of connections there for visual effects and sound uh, you know, the actual sound edit. So we did all of that there. That's incredible. So how, I mean, you're not really on vacation when you go over there. It's, it's, it's a work trip, but it must've been just fantastic. At some point you just like, I'm in Spain editing my movie, doing the post-production of my film. Like that must've been an awesome feeling. It was, it was really fun. It was really, really fun. And yeah, I ate a lot of great food. Yeah, sure. <laughs> now I have this question I always like to ask filmmakers. I had a, a documentary filmmaker on one a couple of years ago, and we were talking about when did you know you were finished? When did you know you were finished making the film? And he liked to tell, he, he said to me that he never finished the film, that his producer called him one day and said, you don't have to finish the movie. You just have to stop work. And I, I'm always want to ask you, you know, when did you have the final cut of the film? And could you, if you had more time or more funding, would you have continued to work on the movie? Longer and longer and longer. A movie is never finished. Never finished. It's never finished. Because um, because in the editing, you're basically starting all over again. I could take all that same footage and make six or seven different movies, you know? So, yeah, so it's never finished. I had, and I would always do this from now on, too, I just set a deadline, so that's when the movie's going to be done, you know. Um and I and I you know I I just also had to just kind of go, you know, it I'm not looking for perfection here. This is not we're not going for perfection. We can't just nitpick every little thing. So you have to just stop and go how important is that? Is that really bugging me? You know what I mean? Or is that or can I let that go? And it was good to have somebody else to bounce things off of, you know, because we would each have things that would like that's really going to bug me or something that where the other person could go that's not a big deal. Let's let that go. You know, let's let that go. Let's move on. And so, yeah, so we, we, you know, we set deadlines all along. And in part, those deadlines were set based on how long he, you know, we had brought him to the U.S. for, you know. So he came twice. We did the first edit. Then we let it sit for, God, I don't know, six or eight weeks or something, you know, where he went back to Spain, did some other stuff, and then came back again so that we would do the final cut with a fresh brain, go back over everything that we had done, what's bugging us now. Let's, we were so sick of the material, so sick of watching the movie, so sick of every detail of it. And then to be able to just give our brains a break and then come back to it, fresh brains and watch it again and go, okay, now what doesn't work and what does work or whatever. So we did it that way. And then, and then again, you know, with when you're paying people so little, like at this budget level, you can't ask people to make things perfect for you. I, you know, I could not afford to be a perfectionist. So I had to be able to go, all right, we can work with that. Okay. You know, like it's gonna, it's at least we're gonna have the finished movie. All right. So you've got the completed film. You've got your final cut. You filmed it here in Ocala. 
naturally, I have to assume that you're going to do a cast and crew screening for, you know, all the people that were involved, even even the, the locals, the investors, everyone. You're going to do a screening for them. You have to do a cast and crew screening. I'm assuming this was done at the historic Marion Theater, which is in downtown Ocala. Of course. Of course. Where of course. else would it be? There's nowhere else you could have a screening for in Ocala than that particular theater. Tell me how that night went. It was great. And it was a really important give back. Like, I felt so grateful to the town for having taken us under their wing, given us so much, you know, to make this movie happen. Um, it felt like it was really important for us to come back and say, here is the creation that you, you know, here's the thing you helped create. Uh, the whole town came out, uh, Kane Hodder, Naomi Grossman, Sandy McCree, a bunch of the cast and crew came. We did sort of a VIP event over at the Brick. And then, uh, then we had the, the actual screening at the Marion Theater. And then we all walked down, uh, to the whiskey bar and where they had a featured zombie drink, you know, <laughs> for everyone. And, uh, it was just a blast. It was so much fun. And yeah, everyone had fun. And at that point for you, are you, you're relaxed at this point? You're having a blast. No, you're still, are you, are you stressed out? Are you nervous? What's, oh my gosh. what's going through your mind at this, uh, cast and crew screening? Uh, well, first of all, it's really terrifying, uh, very vulnerable to have people see your work. So it's really scary to sit in a theater and have people watching, you know, your work, even if you're really proud of it, you know? Uh, you're just the whole time, you know, listening for people to laugh at the right places or, you know, react in a certain way or something. Um, but they all reacted really wonderfully and that felt great. And then, you know, we, we still had to like physically just sort of do all the stuff at the Marion Theater while everyone was having fun at the party. Then, you know, after, after all of that, I mean, there's certainly a sense of relief, right? When that's done and okay, and I've, you know, finished that sort of next step in the, the game. Uh, after that, you move to distribution yeah. and that is a, a very stressful, difficult, thing. And if you have very little to no money like we did, there are a lot of things that you have to do that people get paid a lot of money to do that are extremely difficult. For example, uh, I had to go through the entire movie frame by frame. So talking, you know, 24 frames per second, 60 seconds, 83 minutes, and twice. Um, each time took a couple of months because I had to go frame by frame and put into this spreadsheet the words that were spoken. So when somebody starts to speak and when they finish speaking and who they're speaking to goes into the notes section and, you know, literally the frame that it starts on the frame, who they're, who they're speaking to and what they say, the exact words have to be typed out. And then, um, so you do that, right? Including little reactionary like, oh, or uh-huh, or, you know, or a, or a big laugh, or a cry, or, you know. So you do that, and then the next thing is frame by frame what you see. So with no sound on, you're just doing so, and then you have to describe, you know. So it's like uh, Dana sitting at a table, nodding his head, you know, extras in the background, um, you know, or whatever. And that's, it. and then, but the frames change all the time. Cause when we're editing, we're switching it up all the time. So it's like Dana sitting, blah, 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 you know, um, and Wells sitting on the other side of the table, you know, it's like, and so you're typing out 
every single thing that happens in the entire movie. Why? For well, distributors need it for um, for translations in other languages. Okay. Um, they need it also for closed captioning. Sure. Okay. Um, so it's used for all of those all of those purposes. And that's something you have to do. It's not something when they pick or up you the pay distri- somebody. Or you pay someone to do it. But it's not like when they pick up the distribution, they're going to do it. They, that's no, it's, you got, have- it's part of what's called deliverables. Deliverable. So, okay. So you have a list of deliverables. Once you get, you go, yay, I got a distributor. You know, this is great. And they go, yay, great to have you on board. Okay. Here's a list of all the things we need. What, what's, I mean, without going through the entire list, what are some common garden variety deliverables that someone, besides what you just mentioned, like that people have to have Ready. Well, the the movie, and you have to have it, in, you know, in digital form and in the correct formats, you know, okay. and um, the uh, you have to have. I think we had to do the entire movie with no sound too, so we had to do an export with no sound. So a bunch of exports, a bunch of technical exports of the movie itself that have to be done, and then uh, and then lists of the uh, cast, any kind of billing restrictions or requirements. You know, your full credits list exactly as it is in the movie, all any copyrights, all the copyrights and um, uh, paperwork contracts, you know, all of that stuff. It's a very intense, long process getting all the de- deliverables crossed off the list. That's no. See, and in, the, see, this is all stuff I, you know, you, you don't, you don't, you don't think about it. I'm, I mean, I'm not a filmmaker. I would never think about that. I would think, oh, you've made your movie and uh, so-and-so wants to distribute it. Here <laughs> yeah. you go. Do with it. Do what you're going to do, you know. And if you have more money, you can do that. Right. Right. So Because you can pay somebody to do all the deliverables. I don't want to jump ahead because I want to talk about how you got, I mean, when the distribution that you did get for the film. But when you... When a company does choose to distribute the film, can they make changes to the movie? I'm sure there are some contracts that work that way. Ours doesn't. Okay. Um, but I imagine that there are some scenarios where there could be that. They can, they can create new, um, trailers for it. Okay. If they want to. Um, they can create new key art and stuff like posters and things. Um, but they basically, we still own the movie. They, they just have licensed it. So they can't really make any material changes without asking us. Okay. All right. So what, what talk about how you got distribution for this film? So we'd been in contact with a bunch of distributors over the years while we were making it and stuff. So we had made some contacts and stuff. Um, and then we ended up. Don't remember how we originally met them, but we we were just having conversations with a lot of different distributors, and we ended up with Gravitas Ventures, and um, we liked them, we liked what they do, and they were they just ended up being floating to the top of the pile um, when it was time to pick. We we just thought they were the ones that we really wanted to work with, so they picked it up for domestic for U.S. and Canada, and then then uh, my producing partner Chris Puler had had gone to AFM 
the year that we were finishing the movie, so in 2017, while I was in Spain, he was in LA at the American Film Market. And the next year was when we were getting ready to sort of figure out the international piece. We'd figured out the domestic piece. We were getting ready to figure out the international piece. So I went to the American Film Market last year and met a bunch of uh, overseas, you know, international distributors and things. So we ended up with uh, Devil Works, uh, and they are a sales agent. And so they are, you know, just uh, shopping it around around the world. We've already uh, sold the movie to Taiwan and Germany and some German speaking territories in other countries. And they are out there working their butts off to get it sold elsewhere. So all right, so we we got kind of a to be continued on the uh, oh yeah the question as far as that goes. Oh yeah, thanks for sharing all that. That that was an incredible story. Naturally, I have some some immediate questions that come to my mind is during this five year five plus year long odyssey, which is this film, which mm-hmm. is, you know, your first feature film. Are there any lessons that you've you've learned through this that you that you would take in moving forward for future projects? I can tell you the biggest lesson that I learned over and over and over again, and I'm already, you know, experiencing it again on my next one, um, is, uh, you know, the not giving up thing is so important because, and I don't say to young people like, don't give up if your goal changes. Obviously, if, if your goal changes, change what you're doing, you know? So it's not about like, keep doing it even if you hate it. It's not that. It's, it's, if you have a dream and a goal and you go, no, this is what I love. This is what I do. And this is what I'm good at doing. And I know I'm good at doing it. You have to just keep going and you're going to get knocked down left and right. And it hurts. It sucks. You'll have somebody think, you know, somebody give you some great hope of either, you know, paying for the full film or being in your movie or helping you in some way. And there's some great thing on the horizon and it'll disappear as far as it, as as soon, you know, as quickly as it appeared. Or you'll have somebody just say, I I really don't like your work. I really don't like it. You know what I mean? And you have to, uh, what I do now, I never, ever let myself crawl under the covers and cry. I never let myself for a moment, the minute I start feeling that like huge disappointment and like, God, really? That sucks. And that really hurt. You know, I just go sit at the computer and do something. I just take a step. I send an email. I keep a list of all the positive things that happen along the way so that I can remember, so I can go back to that list every time it feels like, shit, what? You know, is this whole thing going to fall apart? Is, you know, am I ever going to get this done? Is this actually going to happen? Am I on the right track? What am I doing? I go and look at the list and I go, nope, guess what? This is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this person said yes, and that person said yes, and this person liked it, and this, you know, and I go, so keep going, and just keep going, just, you know, it just trust that it's going to happen. Awesome. That's, that's phenomenal advice. That's awesome. So, while you're still working on the international distribution for this film, I guess the, the next question is, do you have another project in mind? Have you have you thought about what's next, even though this one is still working its way through the distribution channels? I mean, do you have another project? Oh, absolutely. That's what I'm doing here in Ocala right now. Interesting. Um, yeah. Interesting. It's called Arthur Prescott's Evil Alien Adventure. I already have... 
uh, several names I can announce that I have not announced anywhere that oh, nobody oh, knows. This is a Dana Buckler show exclusive. It is. This is exciting. Okay. The, yes. Uh, listeners, they haven't was- even been noticed. I mean, they haven't even been announced on social media or anything yet. Okay. All right. Um, so. so, for one thing, we have Kane Hodder again. Outstanding. Outstanding. And that's really awesome. And I wrote the role in this movie for him specifically. We also have Bill Mosley. Oh, no kidding. The two of them together. Exactly. This is exciting. We have uh, several others in the works, but that I can't announce yet. Okay. All right. Now, those I can announce. Are you able to mm-hmm. give the listeners a just a brief synopsis of what the film's about? Because mm-hmm. that's, sure. I mean, just the name itself is super intriguing. So I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah. So it's about a guy named Arthur Prescott. Very wealthy guy, lives on a golf course. He's never really had to work a day in his life. He's a trust fund baby who's now all grown up. And his uh, children are also trust fund babies. They've never had to work. They're adults still living at home and kind of, you know, um, directionless. And and of course, his trophy wife is sleeping with the accountant. And, you know, they're trying to kill him and, you know, uh, take all his money and et cetera. And uh, he gets hit in the head with a golf ball and gets amnesia. And um, through a series of sort of hilarious events in the hospital. He um, gets taken hostage by an evil alien named Lola, who is androgynous and in in the life form. And so uh, Lola is trying to take over the universe and is in just sort of the last few, few m- couple of months of being successful at this. A Another group of good aliens vigilante aliens has come to Earth to thwart this effort, you know, and to defeat Lola. And so Arthur ends up in the middle of all of this. This group of vigilante aliens happen to land in a church, and everything they learn about humanity is basically from this church <laughs> and from the... um the hip hop uh, culture that's around that that's around this church, and so they um, that's and, and they end up teaching Arthur how to be a better human. Okay, that sounds ex- that sounds awesome. Uh, are you? I mean, are you down here scouting locations for this? Are you looking to film here in Ocala again? Is that hopefully I'm the looking- fun- Yes, I'm looking to shoot here in Ocala. I would love to shoot here in Ocala, but I'm back to square one looking for funding. Sure. So we can't really look at locations yet, although we do, we are in the process of, of, uh, kind of a sponsorship thing with a local hotel group that, um, and so we will be shooting as long as we can get the money together and shoot in Ocala, we will shoot one of the scenes in their hotel. And I'm hoping that if we shoot here, that that bank building is still available so that we can turn it into something completely different, which would be cool. Yeah. So I'd love to shoot here again. That's really exciting. So you're Mm going to keep your, of course, keep me updated on the progress. I'll keep the listeners updated. We'll have you back on the show when you're back in town shooting the film. So, all right. And before we wrap this up, people want to follow you, website, social media, where where can they where can they do that? Um, well, there's um, you know me personally. I have Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Although I really save my Facebook for people that I know for the most part. But uh, yeah, for the movie, an accent was on me named Ted. We're also out there everywhere. It has its own Twitter, its own Instagram, its own website. Oh yeah, there's so there's AnnWells.com. There's an accent was on me named Ted.com. There's Arthur Prescott's Evil Alien Adventure.com. And so on the websites you can usually find like, you know, where all the places are that you okay. can follow along. Um Arthur Prescott's Evil Alien Adventure is about to get its own Twitter 
Twitter and, you know, Instagram and stuff. So people will be able to follow along there. And that's where we'll announce the names that I just told you that That, no one knows yet. That's perfect. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to to just talk about your journey. It's been really awesome. It's been eye-opening in a lot of cases. Like, I mean, it's been exciting. All the links that you are, all the websites and everything, all of that, there'll be links in this episode show notes for people just to one click. So we'll, we'll put all that in there in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being interested. Yeah, of course. I really appreciate it. All right. And thank you so much for being on the show. We'll talk soon. Thank you. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.